and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this week's episode, we will be talking about side quests in video games, those little additions that can either feel like a fun distraction or feel like a chore. Of course, I would love to tell you more, but first, there's another settlement that needs your help. To help me break down and analyze this topic is a man who always has an exclamation mark over his head, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Pretty good, man. How, how you been? Doing good, man. Doing good. No complaints. Uh, life is pretty sweet. Playing any good games lately? Just Overwatch, man. You know I'm on that Overwatch jam. Still? Yeah, yeah. I'm cranking my way through Diamond. Well, not through Diamond at the uh, the very bottom of Diamond, but getting a little better every season, so that's good. How about you? What are you playing? I've been playing a lot of Horizon Zero Dawn, and I'm loving that game. It's It's been so good so far, and... I thought I was getting close to finishing it earlier this week, and uh, I kind of looked up online that uh, I have quite a bit to do still, so I'm looking forward to continuing that. Yeah, I'm super jealous, man. That game looks really good, and I've heard nothing but great things about it. As a fan of open-world games, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the buzz I hear around that one makes it sound like it's just right up my alley, so it's one I'm probably going to have to pick up soon. Yeah, for sure. It, it's definitely um, made owning a PS4 worth it for me because I'm more of a PC gamer, but uh, yeah, Horizon is one of those one of those exclusive games that I've been looking forward to a long time, and I'm glad that it's delivering so far. And I hear that that one like really busts through the roof if you're playing on a PS4 Pro. Yeah, which... I, I hear like the HDR, if you're like, watching it or playing it on a uh, 4K TV with HDR, it's like incredible. I'm like super impressed by the way it looks just on my normal TV, my 1080 TV. Uh, it's probably one of the best looking games I've ever played. It's it's pretty nuts. Uh, but that that's an, a big ass open world game, and that's probably a, I guess a good way to segue into our topic for today, which is side quests in video games. Hey, hey Steve. Um, yes. I have to ask you a favor. Like, I, I know you're trying to get going and host this podcast and everything, but uh, I've got a little problem that maybe you could help me with. What is it, Jared? Uh, I have these uh, dogs. There's like four dogs outside my window barking and a couple of landscapers with leaf blowers. And, uh, you know, I'd be really grateful if you could go out there and, um, you know, deal, deal with them. Um, I, I could surely reward you in some way. Um, yeah, man, no problem. Um, I guess let me, let me grab my club and, uh, hop in my car and I'll be there in eight hours. To yeah, it's fine. Like, we, like, it's fine. Like this podcast right. isn't something we have to do right this second. So, um, yeah, just put that on hold or put the podcast on hold and come do that. that yeah. That'd be great. Okay. But when, it, when the job is done, I'm going to be expecting many rupees in reward for this. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. That, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Did we do it? <laughs> so yeah, side quests. How, how about them side quests? What, where did, uh, what are, what's up with side quests? Um, so I guess maybe we should start out by at least explaining a little bit what we mean by side quests. So when we're talking about side quests, I think that that's a big blanket statement that kind of covers a lot of different things that we'll get into in a little more detail as we're uh, discussing the topic more. But generally, at least the way that I perceive side quests are things that are adjacent to, tangential to the the main story of uh, of a video game, things that are like I sort of said in the intro, distractions from the main story. But what do you, what do you think of when you think of side quests? Yeah, I mean it's just something that kind of adds flavor to the game that you're playing. It 
hopefully expands on the world that they've built and gives you a little bit more immersion of you know the 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 life that your character is living and yeah i know i know a lot of this stems from rpgs but you're starting to see side quests in pretty much every game now yeah mechanically what is a side quest to you like how does a side quest function in a game i mean cynically when i think about it one of the things that comes to mind immediately is like the mmo style side quest where it's basically you walk up to a guy with a marker over his head and they're like hey come and come give me like five rat tails and exchange here's some xp and maybe a little bit of items that will help you out a little bit um but lately, I mean, there have been some really great games that are coming out with actual substance behind their side quests. So, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's still a, a mechanic that's being developed and, and iterated upon. So you can't really define it in any one way yet, I don't think. Now, is it weird that when I think of side quests, the first thing I think of is someone asking me to collect rat tails as well? <laughs> I mean, right. Like, So that's like when you look at early... MMO RPGs. They're trying to kind of mimic the gameplay that you would have from games like, you know, tabletop role playing, like Dungeons and Dragons and those types of games. So, with the limitations in place, that was just kind of what they could default to. Like, go out here, do do this kind of objective, simple quest objective, and get a reward. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, that was enough. But I think as we continue to develop more intricate systems this is uh something that's gonna be it's gonna be changed for the better i hope now it's interesting that you actually bring up dnd as uh sort of the original foundation of side quest because i think uh one of the games that is often credited as the first game to include side quest is a game called pool of radiance from 1988 which was based on the advanced dungeons and dragons mechanics and in that game there were quests you could do, uh, ways you could interact with characters that then changed how characters interacted with your player character in that game. This is a video game? Yeah, an uh, old like computer game from 88. And I think eventually it might have made its way onto some consoles years later. But uh, yeah, originally a PC game. And it actually had some other really cool mechanics, not really related to side quests, but things that I think are kind of interesting. Like you could export your character from that game uh, to be used in other games that used that advanced Dungeons and Dragons formula, that template. Uh, So it's kind of cool. You know, you think about, at least I initially thought about Mass Effect when when I think of that topic as like one of the more recent games to do that. And it's like, oh, cool. I can transfer my character from one game to the other. It's like, yeah, you could do that fucking 25 years ago (laughs) yeah and and, you know that was the thing that people had been doing for years before video games became you know what if you want to consider mainstream but like the pen and paper rpgs like anyone who's played a campaign or been a dm knows that usually your group of players is going to do everything they can to derail the main story so got to have some stuff in place that they can you know some story there that they can go off and and do what they want and still have a good time i think that might just be like the kinds of groups that we play in. Like we're just <laughs> assholes, so we're of course always trying to derail the DM, but I don't know that every group does that. Sure, but you know, that 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 freedom of choice uh, was there. So when video games came around and RPGs started becoming popular, uh, people were looking for that same kind of experience, I think. Now, here's another game that is often credited as being 
the progenitor of side quests and actually came out before Pool of Radiance is The Legend of Zelda. And now in that game, there were, you would earn heart containers from finishing dungeons, but there were actually five optional hidden heart containers in that world that uh, required you to use your bombs, required you to use your ladder or your raft or your candle to find them. Legend of Zelda, you say? Yeah. Never um, heard of it. Dude, you're going to get us doxxed saying shit like that. <laughs> yeah, from 1986. And I'm curious, do you do you sort of consider that as a as a side quest? It's not really a quest. No one in the game asks you to go find those things, but they are optional. Yeah, um believe it or not, I am I am vaguely familiar with Legend of Zelda, but um yeah, I guess that would be a side quest. That that game definitely didn't hold your hand and tell you like, "Hey, here's a side quest you can do." Uh, you either found it or heard about it and went and did it, or you didn't. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a rudimentary type of side quest. It was it was a side quest that you give yourself, really, if you if you wanted those five extra hearts. And it, I, it's interesting because I don't know that anybody found those things on their own. I mean, I guess maybe originally someone had to uncover them, but for the most part, it was like put a bomb in a random fucking place and get a heart container. Yeah, I, I kind of miss stuff like that where you would gather around at school or on drink, drinking fountains or whatever and start talking about the games that you're playing, Legend of Zelda or whatever, and be like, oh, did you did you know if you go over here? And there was always like those urban legends of things that you could do in the video game if you if you looked hard enough or you tried hard enough. Um, and that was, you know, pre-internet. So it's not like everybody could pull apart the game and look at the code and find every single little hidden thing that there was immediately. For me, that thing was the Tomb Raider nude code. <laughs> that's that exactly that thing what that, I was thinking. <laughs> that was that thing that was like a rumor in the schoolyards, but no one could ever seem to figure out how to do it. Yeah, everyone had their own system. It was yeah. You, first, you had to go into a corner and get the camera just right, and then you had to put in. It was ridiculous. Was there a nude code? I don't think there was. No. Right? God, there was no, no nude code. No. See, that's like. Not. I mean, that's how pervasive it is. I'm still not even sure if it was real or not. Maybe eventually when it came out on PC, there was a nude mod. Mm. Mm. How do I how do I get this game on PC? <laughs> uh, I gotta tell you, man. There's there's other ways, other things on the internet that you might want to spend your time looking at. <laughs> uh, conversation for a very different podcast. <laughs> uh, what are you playing right now that has side quests in it? You said you were playing um, Horizon Zero Dawn. How are the side quests in that one? They're they're good. Um, there, as far as I've encountered, there hasn't been any like fetch quests, and uh, you know you could define fetch quest as what we were talking about earlier, where it's like, hey, go and get, go kill ten of these, to go do this, and bring back five of these, whatever. Um, so far, it seems like each there aren't a ton of side quests, um, but I am doing them all because they each have their own little story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, there's some other like trials and stuff where. It is like, go kill two of these, but do it with this weapon in this way, which is pretty cool. Like, shoot these logs and make them roll into uh, these long necks or whatever. Um, and that's kind of fun because you get to experiment with new kinds of combat that you might not necessarily run into. And it feels really, really rewarding. You know, there's you get special weapons from finishing uh, quest lines that you wouldn't normally get. And um, it's, I don't know, I think... It, the side quests are fun because the combat is fun in that game. The movement is great. Uh, everything about it so far, I've really, in, really enjoyed. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, I think that Horizon is a great example of of good side quest design. Now, I don't think it's the perfect example, but uh, it's definitely definitely on the top end. How are side quests administered in that game? Is it still walk up to an NPC with a exclamation mark above their head? And yeah, they- yeah, for the most part, like you'll you'll be wandering the world, and sometimes you'll hear someone say like, "Hey, hey, can you come over here real quick?" And uh, I got something to ask you. Um, Cause you turn into like a public figure pretty quickly in that game. People know who you are. So um, yeah, they do have the markers above their heads and there are a couple instances where you'll just run into some people out in the, out in the wild fighting something. And you, if you help them, like there's no quest for those, there's no marker for those, but if you help them, they're like, Oh, Hey, here's a, here's a reward chest and they'll just hand that over to you. So, you know, as far as the delivery or the introduction of the side quest goes, it's pretty standard, but uh, I think the mechanics surrounding it make it fun. And does that feel organic to you? Because for me, I think there's there's a couple of different ways to approach side quests. And one of them is that more traditional way of like walk up to an NPC and he asks you to go get rat tails for him. And the other one is kind of like what you just described where something is just sort of going on in the world and then you become a part of it. And one of those things seems very antiquated and one of them seems very organic and uh i'm just wondering like how how does it feel in that game world to have you know people run up and ask you to do something versus you initiate uh for the most part it's it's pretty organic like a lot of the quests uh givers end up being in new like settlements that you come across so they're kind of just like around marketplaces and stuff like that um <laughs> this isn't really a spoiler but if you don't want to know anything about Horizon Zero Dawn, cover your ears for 30 seconds. But there's a there's a guy uh, in one of the towns, and he's just like looking for able-bodied adventurers who uh, preferably don't have uh, loved ones or friends. And I think that's pretty funny. And uh, I think the main thing that I like about how side quests are introduced in this game is that there's no like super urgent task, at least immediately, that you need to complete. Uh, that it feels like doing a side quest doesn't make any sense. That's cool. Yeah, there's there's a term that I will probably use from time to time on this show called the 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 term is thematic. I'll say something's thematic or not. And what I mean by that is, does it make sense in the world that the designers have created? Um, and I think what you're kind of alluding to with the uh, main storylines that have a sense of urgency. Is that when you get those side when you get a side quest, like I was sort of spoofing at the beginning of this episode with the Fallout 4 reference, it doesn't make sense that this character who's looking for his son who was kidnapped would go, you know, shoot a bunch of mutants in a sewer, uh, let alone do that like twenty fucking times. Right. It, thematically, that doesn't seem appropriate. So I I am I am glad to hear that uh, Horizon Zero Dawn seems to be aware of that issue and circumvent it. Hopefully it continues to do that for the rest of your playthrough. Yeah, I think that's actually a big problem with Bethesda games, right? Is that they make these giant worlds and there's there's so much to do and they pride themselves on, you know, these these stories that unravel uh, and, and environmental story, storytelling and stuff like that. But, um, you know, depending on what game you're talking about, there's, there is that, hey, we have to do this or else the end of the world is going to happen. But first you know, do, do all this stupid menial shit. I think Skyrim uh, is one of the worst offenders of that, where 
you become this all-powerful dragon slayer and then there's people in town still asking you hey like listen i I dropped my i dropped my goblet back there and there's skeletons can you go and help me with that and it's like dude come on yeah that's a i i see that as a huge problem in video games and something that i i think bethesda is very very guilty of i think their approach to side quests is very antiquated but they also have some like great side quests too. Like some, there are some like really thought out stories being told there. But it clashes so much with the main story. Yeah. Now, is there a is there some sort of philosophy you follow when you're when you accept side quests in games or when you do side quests? Like, do you do all of them? Do you do none of them? It, it depends you... on the game, really. Um, I'm gonna bring up Ubisoft a lot because they have kind of this formulaic game design these days where you have a huge open world climb a tower or something similar unveils parts of the map and then there's eight million icons now that you can go collectibles racing all this other shit that i really don't care about that much like i I don't want to collect 500 things there's no there's no reward to doing so it's not fun to do it's just tedious so in situations like that, maybe I'll, I'll get them if I see them along the way, but I definitely am not a completionist. I, I can't stand just doing things just to have things to do. Like, it doesn't make sense. So how, um, do you pick, how do you pick and choose which ones you do and which ones you don't? Do you role play? Do you go like, it, you know, my character in this story would do this the way that I'm playing it? it I mean, yeah, if it... If it seems like something that the character could do that makes sense at the time, like I have no problem pursuing a side quest. Uh, or if I think it's going to give me like a huge advantage or some like, really cool ability or a really cool item, that's something that I'll pursue. But it just, you know, it, d- it depends. I'll, I'll try it. And if it, if it feels like garbage and there's, there's like 500 more of them to do, I'll just ignore them and continue on, my, on the main quest line. What about you? I'm one of those players who, in the past, I, w- I had to do every side quest. I don't know what it is. Like, I hate that part about me. I wish I could shut that part of my brain off that says, like, you have to do every single side quest. But I, I sort of feel that compulsion. But more lately, the way I've been approaching side quests is, like, before I sit down and play a game, I will decide what I'm going to do. So for- Fallout 4 is probably my most recent example of a game I've played that has a lot of side quests in it. And when I turn that game on, I will decide today I'm going to progress through the story or today I'm just here to kind of fuck around for a bit and I'm going to bang out as many side quests as I can. And that's the way that I have to approach that stuff because otherwise I'll drive myself insane trying to complete all the side quests. Yeah, and that game is that game's egregious too. Like you complete one side quest and you go talk to Preston and he's like, hey, three more settlements need your help. <laughs> and those things are like procedural too. So I don't think like... I don't think those ever have an ending, which is Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? No, no, they're the, like the settlements and stuff. Those, those will just happen forever. Fuck my ass. <laughs> I think, you know, like you, you'll get more, um, people, you know, to, to help you or you're, you'll increase whatever your settlement stats are, but, uh, it, it'll just keep going and going. But uh, yeah, like, what are you going to do that day? That's one thing I've been, how I've been playing Horizon. It's like, I only have like an hour to play. I'm going to go do these, finish these trials because, I, you know, these don't take long and there's not a huge, I'm not going to be interrupted in the middle of like a cool story segment where I'm going to come back later and be like, oh, what was going on? I can just kind of play around with that for a little bit and, um, you know, get, get my enjoyment out of that while, while still 
feeling relevant to the main storyline. I think it's a lot of fun doing that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's you, you do have to sometimes it, modern games lately have just started adding as much stuff as they can, especially Ubisoft games. It's a worse offender, in my opinion. They just they just pack map full of, of things to do. Um, most of it, I feel like, is not worth the time. Now, in those cases, is it not worth the time because the gameplay itself isn't that interesting or that world isn't very interesting? Because when I hear stuff like that, and I know the way Ubisoft approaches uh, side quest design with a lot of sort of copy and paste mechanics. Um, But for someone who loves that world, doesn't that just seem like more fun things for them to do in that world? Yeah, I mean, everyone has the decision or has the choice not to do those. And I, I think you just have to make that decision in your head, like you said, before you start playing the game, like, am I going to go into this game and try to do everything? Or are you just going to stick to the main the main stuff? Because it can, I mean, it can add another 40 hours onto an already, you know, 50 hour long game if you want to complete that stuff. But uh, for the most part, for me, anyways, again, these are our opinions. But for me, it's not uh, it's not worth it. Yeah, I, don't, I just yeah. don't think the payout is worth worth the time invested and most of the time I don't find it fun. Yeah. I in Ubisoft games I would have to agree. Most of the time I find that stuff to be kind of boring. Um and here's an interesting question I think that we should consider and other people should consider while we're having this discussion is why why do developers spend time and money and resources developing content that is optional in their game? Because there's, you know, in some of these bigger games, hundreds and hundreds of people working on these things, and there's portions of the game that no one will ever see because it's optional or it's hidden or or something like that. So why why do developers include that stuff? It's a good question, and I I don't know if I really know like the financial decision behind doing that, but from a cultural perspective, I, I've been getting over the past you know 15 years or so that people uh, value their games based on the amount of hours that it takes to finish them or how long they could spend playing that one game um, and they, they put like the dollar value behind it it's like this $60 game better be 100 hours long you know um, so some people some people view it like that I personally I rather have 10 hours of quality gameplay or and storytelling versus a hundred hours of doing tedious collecting and all that kind of stuff. What do you think? Well, here's an interesting quote from Nicholas Colm, who is the quest designer for the Witcher three. And this is a quote from a, uh, an interview that he did with game informer. Uh, and he, he was asked the question of why, why do they build side quests into games? And he said, aside from the obvious answer of giving players extra things to do, a world that only revolves around the main story feels dead. The world would feel less vibrant. But if you get the player involved in side quests that weave a story, and if that story then impacts other aspects of the world and narrative, then it feels like the realm is alive and doesn't solely revolve around the main character doing his main mission. Sure, yeah, like that, that makes complete sense. Does it, though? I so It depends on the type of game, right? I, well, all right, so I guess this gets into like where you know, is, is the design good or not? And unfortunately I, I didn't play the Witcher, so I can't speak specifically to that, but I have never been walking somewhere and had someone just like randomly offer to pay me 
to go do something really quickly for them. In real life? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's like, hey, man, uh, you're pumping gas. Hey, man, uh, me and my wife, we just, uh, you know, our, our car broke down and we just need money for the bus. Yeah, but I've never had anyone be like, hey, go smack 15 rats and bring their tails to me and I'll give you 12 rupees. I've never had that before. I've, I mean, that's I, basically Craigslist, right? <laughs> So I think in a way, I I agree with some of the sentiments of this, that if you build a big open world and there's nothing to do in it besides just progress through the main storyline, that, yeah, that world might seem a little bit devoid. But on the other hand, some of this stuff doesn't thematically make any sense. So I, I sort of take issue with it where he's saying it makes it feel like the world is is alive. It it makes it feel like there's stuff to do, but I don't know that that necessarily translates to like a living world. The stuff that to me is really exciting about, and we'll go back to talking about Bethesda games, the stuff that to me makes that world feel alive is that when it's nighttime, the shopkeepers close up and go home and they sleep in a bed that is theirs. And, you know, those are the things that make a world feel alive to me. Right. There's there's and, things and, that are going on around you and, and you just happen to be in it. And being able to see those those machinations, I think, is is really cool. Sure. Be, being being asked to go do some trivial bullshit to me is does not make me feel like, oh, this world is thriving. I, I'm. My character is is so fully realized in this world. I I forgot I was playing a game. Yeah, and I think the the thing that makes that work in a game like The Witcher Three is that you're you're playing a Witcher, and Witchers are basically mercenaries hired to to do jobs, dispatch monsters, and stuff like that. And uh, Geralt, uh, he's always looking for the next dollar to make, and that's the thing. Is like there's. Yes, there's kind of a sense of urgency in what you're trying to do in the main part of that game, but you know he doesn't necessarily know where to go next. So he's just kind of he's going from town to town, and jobs pop up for him, and it makes sense for that character in the lore of the game and the lore of you know the Witchers in general to to take on these jobs. And uh, the thing that's great about all of those is that every single thing is voice acted. The voice acting is great. And there's a beginning, middle, and end. And some of those stories that are told there are almost better than what's going on in the main story, which is uh, pretty impressive considering how, how large that game is. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, what makes good side quest design and what makes poor side quest design. So in, in your opinion, what, when, you, when, you're playing a, when you're doing a side quest in a game, what makes you go like, oh yeah, that was great, or... Dude, what a fucking waste of my time. So when I was doing some research for this this episode, um, one the one game that kept coming back to me was Mass Effect 2. Uh, the thing I really loved about that game was like, yeah, there's, like we keep going, there's a sense of urgency uh, because the Reapers are coming. You know, we got we to gotta help get the Citadel. We got to warn. There's all these politics that are being involved. But then you're also collecting um, and recruiting your crew for that game. And it you know, one of the mechanics in that game was like building the loyalty and relationships with your with your crewmates. And a lot of that was done through side quests um, where you would go, you know, you would talk to your crew members on the ship and they would say like, hey, this is something that's been on my mind. Um, and you would end up going and doing missions with them and you would learn more about their past, their history and what kind of person there were. And I felt like, you know, for a game like Mass Effect, where it's all about 
it's all about the story and the relationships and and the people that you're playing uh the characters that are in that game uh being able to expand on that through side quests i thought really worked well now did that did side quests in that game and you you might not really remember because it's been a while but did side quests in that game really affect the main storyline in that game like um getting like garris's favor did that would he then behave differently in the main story because of the way you interacted him with him as a side character? I mean, I think it really would only affect your dialogue choices for the most part. I think the story unraveled the same way. The end game didn't really change much. I've heard you say before, it was more about the adventure than the destination with that kind of thing. So I, I enjoyed doing that stuff. Of course, there was like the planet scanning and stuff like that in the game, which, you know, whatever. You could or not do that in a but you know the, the the stuff where you're learning about your crew, I thought was was definitely uh, the right way to go about making side quests entertaining, at least. Yeah. See, and that is to me sort of like a double edged sword because I I do remember doing some of those uh, side character specific quests and thinking like, oh, this is cool. I'm getting to see more of this person's personality. And you learn more, more about their, their race too, right? Their backstory and the races and that kind of stuff. But I don't recall that really having an impact on the main storyline. Um, and to me, that's kind of a, of a, a problem. I think there's a lot of innovation still to be thought about and figured out on how, how to approach this kind of thing. And I'm really excited for um, CD Projekt Red. They're the people who made The Witcher games mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm really excited for their their new game that uh, cyberpunk 2077 um i'm i'd like to see them iterate on on their side quest system as good as it was i'm i'm really excited to see what they do next because they seem they seem to be in tune with that kind of thing not the most recent deus ex but the the one that sort of kicked off this new deus ex franchise mm-hmm. what was that one called that was they all like have generic titles and it's hard to remember human revolution what's the most recent one called mankind divided See, see what I'm talking yeah. about? Like you just told me the names and I've already forgotten both of them. <laughs> um, so in the, in the first one, there was at the very beginning of the game, you could access a computer terminal at the police station and there were like emails. I, I'm, and now it's been so long. I'm trying to re- remember what it was about, but I think it was about like some blood samples that went missing. And in the email there's, they mention like, Oh, it might, you know, I think maybe it was this person. Uh, and then you can go to that person's office and check their email. And then they give some explanation about like, Oh, you know, I was over there and I saw that person doing something. So, and I ended up, you know, spending the first probably hour of that game, just tracking down this email chain of like what happened to these samples. I, I had no reason to even, no one care told about you it. to do that, right? No one told me to do it. There are yeah, no cool. waypoints on the maps. It was just me doing pretty basic police work. <laughs> um, but that was, to me, that was so cool. And the rest of the game, I don't think really developed on that idea very much beyond that, that one little, you know, interaction at the beginning of the game. Yeah, but that stood out for you. That's 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 super cool. I like stuff like that. It didn't really affect the game at all, at least from what I recall. It didn't have a big impact on that game. But that was the for me the beginning, like seeds of some really cool ideas for the way that side quests can be implemented in games. I think in a lot of ways we've become dependent on things like markers on maps and 
you know, directions on compasses and we always have to know exactly what's going on at all times and where everything in the world is at any given time. And that sort of reminded me of sort of an old style of game design where the player had to draw their own map or you were given actual instructions on how to get from town to town, go down to the docks, make a left, you know, keep going until you go past the archway and then it'll be on your right, stuff like that. And uh, I'm we're starting to get into, I think, kind of a different area of game design talking about those things, but at least the, the, the impact that that really early, uh, I'll call it a side quest in Deus Ex had on me was that idea that I don't have to, I don't have to be explicitly told, go do this thing. If, if the game design is strong enough and the intrigue is strong enough, then I, as the player can figure things out on my own and enjoy doing that and enjoy sort of role playing in that, in that world of like, I am a police officer. I should be investigating what happened to this stuff. When we talk about side quests, a lot of it comes back to being related to RPGs and stuff like that. And but you know, we we said earlier how that's side quests are almost showing up in every game now, like in some form. Um, and I think that that's kind of cool because those games can also kind of uh, approach side quests in their own way. And you know, I don't know if this is a great example, but uh, the newest Doom game that came out uh, in 2016. Um, they didn't really have side quests really, but there were definitely parts of the levels that you don't have to go to at all, but they put like collectibles in there. And while well, I'm the first one to say that I hate finding collectibles, Doom makes that get that process so much fun. Um, one of the early collectibles you get in that game and all of them, as far as I know, uh, were just little tiny Doom guys, different colored Doom guys. And they're like these little chibi looking things. Um, that you would find and every time you pick it up it would play like a part of the doom song but like one of the very first ones that you find your character picks them up and it plays like the little doom song and then your your guy fist bumps the little toy and i was like hell yeah that was awesome and it was like a and then from there on out you you, you need to look out for those things uh and it was kind of like a puzzle trying to find out how to get to them like oh this thing is way up there like how do i get up there and just the mechanics that doom was built around made that a ton of fun so I don't know if you consider that a side quest type thing, but it's definitely like something that you didn't have to do. Um, and that, that was great. I think that gets to sort of the heart of these issues that we're talking about is that I think uh, like when side quests are done well, it's, it's something that you want to pursue. And when they're, when they're done poorly, it feels like busy work or a chore. Yeah, it feels and like I, you're doing work, which I don't want to do when I'm playing a game. And I don't know that there's necessarily a good, you know, a formula you can follow. Like every game should do side quests this way because I think it, it it's different for every single game. So in Doom, it sounds like the mechanics of that game made the act of finding those, you know, the little collectibles enjoyable. Where in a game like Assassin's Creed, and maybe it's because they just put too much fucking collectible shit in that game, but it... I didn't really feel much satisfaction from finding those things. And I think mechanically those sound like very similar examples, but they couldn't be like further from each other as far as their enjoyment level in those games. Yeah. Like when I think about the Assassin's Creed and Ubisoft formula, it seems like they built, they build a game 
with all the story and all the things that you're going to do in that game and all the mechanics. And then they're just like, all right, let's just throw out a bunch of confetti on the map. And this is all an afterthought. Let's, let's outsource this even to a different team, you know? Um, but I, I think what needs to happen or what I think developers are doing to make that stuff actually good is building that those side quests and all those side stories building that in from the beginning with that in mind like we want people to explore this world so we're going to build this game and the main story around the fact that there's other things to do as opposed to just an afterthought yeah moving forward if we're talking about what we want to see in the video game industry uh, i agree 100 percent. i would i would like to see side quests be maybe more closely tied with the story that's going on and not feel like these additional things that you have to do that in some cases are not even related in any re- remote way to the main storyline have them have them be part you know tied into the story have them be something that's going on while your character is doing the most important thing in the world that they can be doing saving the world or finding their son or you know whatever whatever it is in your game of choice Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps up our discussion about side quests. So let's move on to our email section. If you have any questions or comments about side quests and games or uh, any of our previous topics, please email us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Uh, we would love, love, love to read your messages in an upcoming episode and continue the discussion. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with strong opinions or creative opinion, people who are probably much more intelligent than you or I, Jared. Yeah, I don't want this this podcast to just be an echo chamber. So uh, I would like to I'd love to hear from people out there who who have a unique uh, perspective on this stuff. Uh, but also, if you have any ideas for future topics you want us to talk about, send those along as well. Uh, like we mentioned in the last episode, we don't have any ideas. This is it. Like, nope. These these were our we're two ideas. We, these were our two ideas. We burned through them. So if you guys want more of this, uh, send something along. All right, so if we wanted to uh, take a look at some of our responses from our last episode, which was difficulty settings, uh, I got a few people sending me some comments on uh, Twitter, and I got got an email here. Uh, the first one is from at Mr. Mischievous on Twitter. Uh, he says, uh, I think the first instance of varying difficulty may be Birdie the Brain. The creator would change the difficulty players. Uh, and I, I was kind of looking into this because it, it was kind of interesting. Um, it was a, uh, one of the like first video games that used a a actual screen to show a game of tic-tac-toe and it was built in Toronto by Joseph Cates, uh, for the 1950 Canadian national exhibition. Uh, and he would, he, the, uh, the guy who built it, he was able to change the difficulty level, uh, himself, uh, for players and, um, I'll just read here what, I, what this article I was reading. It says the machine had an adjustable difficulty level. Uh, Kate's also designed the machine so he could manipulate the level of Birdie's intelligence. Uh, at full difficulty, Birdie could not be beaten, but Kate's often lowered it to give people, especially children, a chance to one-up the computer. Birdie the Brain is a candidate for the first video game as it was potentially the first computer game to have any sort of visual display. So I thought that was kind of interesting, just a kind of a, a simple game of tic-tac-toe. It sounds like a really shitty version of Deep Blue. Deep Blue. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Deep Blue is like the, uh, I think the, uh, might have been the first chess, like the chess playing computer. 
And it was like a big deal when a chess master finally beat Deep Blue. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, this is tic-tac-toe. Like, I-, I know, that's what I'm saying. It sounds like a <laughs> shitty version of Deep Blue. <laughs> um, there was an article on Birdie the Brain uh, in Popular Mechanics. And uh, I'm just going to read this quote because I thought it was funny. Um, it says, perhaps Bernie's most memorable moment was when a celebrity attendee, he was a comedian named Danny Kay, he took, the, he took on the computer over and over again, and much to his dismay, Bernie kept winning. The sign, computer brain win, would light up in triumph. Finally, after Cates had lowered the difficulty, K won. As Cates explained to a University of Toronto alumni newsletter recently, K did a dance of joy because he beat the first arcade game in the world. So that's good. I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> he got excited, hmm. but they had to lower the difficulty so he could beat it. Um, I'm yeah. curious about I'm curious about the idea that there's a strategy in tic tac toe that's undefeatable. I, I I mean I was under the assumption that like if you were the first to go, you could pretty much win every time. Isn't that well, the thing with tic tac toe? <laughs> I and see I was under the assumption that if it didn't matter who went first, if you knew the strategy, you could always force a draw. That oh right right yeah. Um, but you know, early computer games, people weren't. People who might have uh, been a little intimidated by what was going on. I'm sure this is like in front of an audience and everything. But that's pretty cool. He's the first one to ever beat a game. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that uh, someone sent in a response to my our, our question because neither one of us were really able to find any information on that. So that's pretty cool. Um, there was actually another tweet here from uh, Alex Vogelman on Twitter. And he said the earliest reference he could find was from a game called Adventure 3 on Atari. And that was uh, the Atari 2600. And that was a little bit more of a video game. It was kind of uh, like an open world uh, quest game with mazes and stuff like that. Um, It would have like a bunch of objects like appearing in set positions at the start of the game. And uh, as you went through the different levels, like the the objects and stuff would get randomized. Uh, But as the player, I guess there were switches on the Atari 2600 that you could control the difficulty with. And like one of the switches you could flip would affect the behavior of dragons in the game. And it would like control the dragon's bite speed. Uh, one of the other switches would cause them to flee when the player was wielding a sword. So it was, uh, you know, kind of a customizable experience, even all the way back uh, in like 1979 when this came out on the 2600. I never had an Atari, so I'm not familiar with like I don't know. It sounds like there's actual hardware switches on there that you would you would affect the difficulty with. So yeah, that's pretty cool. That's like getting into sort of the uh, the crossover between the arcade cabinets and the early consoles. Yeah, definitely. I I remember um, some early home PCs that uh, had a turbo button on the computer, and you could press the turbo button, and it would like make games faster by essentially overclocking the processor it would like it would turn up the clock on the processor and just basically make things run a little quicker yeah but it like it physically like sped up gameplay and stuff like that it's kind of weird mash that turbo button bro (laughs) got another tweet here uh actually this is on facebook from jj chalupnik we were asking players how they felt about being able to control difficulty i remember you said that you were you felt like everything should be like dark souls where it was just one experience or everybody else. But JJ says, uh, I feel like it has to be a demographic first, difficulty second kind of thing. In my opinion, you can't expect all players to be as determined or as skilled as a gamer to succeed in Dark Souls type titles. Uh, that being said, you still have to create a challenging experience with a balanced escalation of difficulty. Uh, I agree 
with almost everything that uh, JJ said there. The one thing that I maybe didn't communicate properly when we were discussing difficulty settings was I don't think that all games need to be as hard as Dark Souls. Sure. Uh, and maybe that didn't come across. It, it, I just think that a, a game should have a single difficulty setting. And if that difficulty setting is easy enough for the majority of the population to get through it, that's fine as long as that's a, sort of a considered choice by the game maker. So I didn't want that to, I didn't want it to come across like I want every game to be super hard uh, and be a real challenge. But I do think that, um, you know, games should present their player with a challenge if that's what the player is seeking. Yeah, I mean, and that was kind of my stance from the start was that like I'm always for player choice. Uh, so this gets into like, I, I guess maybe the best way I can kind of make an analogy here is if you view video games as a, a piece of art, you can't like, there's no, there's no difficulty setting on something like looking at a painting or listening to a song. Everyone shares that experience and we all can talk about it in a common language. Video games are sort of this one kind of art form where you can you can pick how you want to experience it. And I think that that can create some issues. And like you like we talked about with The Witcher 3, it can it can create some actually quite devastating issues where certain players didn't enjoy their experience. And it's because of something as simple as like a switch on the game. Again, there there is a part of me that wants to agree with you that the more choices for players the better. I, I think that it, it presents issues with the way that we talk about games as art. Yeah, sure. And that, that kind of brings me to the this next comment that I got on Facebook from uh, Chester Copperpot. I feel like that's not his real name. He says, it's all on how you view the media. Uh, he asks, is it, a, is it a story experience to consume, an obstacle to overcome, or just an escape from the daily grind? And he says, I forget who said it, but video games are the only form of non-sport entertainment that you can be bad at. Uh, if the developer added it to the game, then no matter what, you're playing it how they intended. I know we keep talking about The Witcher 3 because it's like the most re- recent example that we can think of where the changing the difficulty changed, you know, your experience so much as far as the gameplay went. But, you know, they, they did, they they made the game that way. So I, I think that it's a valid criticism to say, well, this game was boring, even though you played it at easy and you didn't find it very compelling. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is actually on the game designer versus, you know, the uh, the publisher saying like, hey, we have to get a uh, difficulty settings in here so that, you know, a nine year old and a 25 year old can play the exact same game. Yeah, and you have to budget that into your time and, and your, your money when you're developing the game, because just kind of throwing that in towards the end of development and being like, well, we'll just take out, we'll just make everything easy so you don't have to use a bunch of these things that we built in from the, the beginning. I don't think that's the way to do it either. Uh, do you want to take this uh, last email here? Uh, yeah, sure. So our last email comes from Alex. Is that the same Alex from before? Um, I, th- I believe it is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, Alex says, hey, guys, had some thoughts on episode one. Uh, remove difficulty altogether. Not something I agree with. I tend to play games in two different modes. The first is actual competitive play, which I tend to do on PC. Overwatch, Heroes of the Storm, League of Legends. This is where I want to challenge and where I play against other people. I want a high difficulty in this scenario. But the other mode is gaming for relaxation. I usually play console games for this and games like the Uncharted series, The Last of Us, Tomb Raider, Mass Effect. These games I consume for the story, not the difficulty. I don't mind being challenged a bit in the game, 
but I'm not there to be frustrated by a super hard boss battle. I'm there to see the story laid out by the writers and developers. Uh, and there's a little bit more after this, but I kind of want to stop here uh, and, and talk about some of the points that he brought up. Yeah. Um, so this is something that I'm sure people who listen to this show more and more will start to understand about me and my perspective on video games. But I feel like there's a sentiment among players that there's a difference between gameplay and story. Like uh, looking at a game like Uncharted or a game like Mass Effect. Uh, it seems like in a lot of cases, players want to play a game until they get to the next cutscene that tells them what the story is that's going on. And I think that this is a uh, sort of a, a symptom of video games in their infancy. Because I think that the ideal for video games is that gameplay and story are more intertwined. Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely like the direction, like ultimately where we want to end up, right? Like tell the kind of stories that only video games can tell. I think that would be the ideal way for this medium to evolve towards. Yes, I, I, I feel like maybe you and I agree on that point, but not everyone does. And I think that this is where some of the discussion gets splintered where um you know i alex i think has some good points you know he, he plays different games for different kinds of experiences um but i i think that in the future once video games sort of find themselves we will see more experiences like um i'm gonna throw out a game like daisy which i know isn't really a game right now but that's a game where you as the player sort of craft your own story as you're playing it I guess I could also bring up like Minecraft. That's another good example where the world you're in is all of your, it's all your own and there's no story per se, except for the story that you're crafting as you play it. And to me, I think that's, and it might not be the ideal for video games, but I think that that's a step in more the direction that I would like to see video games go. Yeah. It's kind of, I think a spectrum. And I think that, open you know the sandbox games are at the far end of that the the term emergent gameplay comes around a lot now where you know you're you're these stories that are basically like happening to you as you play are like the best parts of the game like the, that's the story that is being told i think uh my favorite example of that is um red dead redemption that game told a story in a way that i felt only a video game could convey a story it was it was an open world, but there was still a structured narrative behind it, and they they ended up completing you know the full arc by the end of the game, and I felt like those experiences that happened to me were unique, but they also happened in a way that was interactive and interesting from a gameplay perspective. You know, by the end of the game, I was like, wow, that that was actually amazing that that I was they were able to direct me towards that story. Uh, while still giving me the freedom to do my own thing. Yeah, that's cool. And I, and like I said, I think as as games continue to improve and iterate, we will hopefully see more experiences like that where the the actual playing of the game is you know is crafting the story and uh, and vice versa. Yeah, there's um, a lot to to still happen. I think with that that, that style of storytelling, a lot, a lot of things to figure out. Yeah, and I, I think, again, like I said earlier, I think it's because video game design is still in its infancy. We're, we're still seeing so many influences from 
the arcade on video game design today. And I think it won't be until video game, until we can figure out, and I don't know what, what this like perfect equation is, but it won't be until we really figure out how to craft a sort of a, a player made experience, uh, you know, a player told story in a video game that that video games will really come into their own and won't rely on the tropes of the arcade or tropes of film, which I think is the other thing that video games rely on pretty heavily is is telling a story the way a movie would tell a story. Yeah, totally. Uh, let's move on to the rest of the email here because this might be my favorite part. I did agree with the point of making the difficulty mechanics more unique than more bad guys that hit harder. Trying to play on hard mode and just facing unending waves is pretty boring, but doing something like changing the dynamics of the fight or changing the weak point of a boss to make it harder are more compelling. I just like that part because he agreed with us. <laughs> That's why he liked it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Alex, for that email. Thank you guys so much for writing in. It's that's been it's been amazing to to see the outreach from everyone and uh, keep keep writing in. Like it's what's gonna keep us keep us going here. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode of Game Breaking Feature. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, please head over to iTunes and give us a review. It really does help. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. And I also want to thank you, the listener, so much for listening. And remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. Thanks, Steve. Have a good one. Yeah, man. Thank you, Jared. I'll catch you next time. Maybe tighten that up at the end where oh, we yeah, yeah, I will. say goodbye. To <laughs> like moment of well, silence for see you later. the shittiness of this episode. And... <laughs>